Justify prove to be right or reasonable Justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification Justify a podcast on law and politics in India from the Vidhi Center for Legal Policy hosted by Orgos and Gupta Hello everyone and welcome to Justify Russia sent its military into Ukraine on the 24th of February it's actually been almost 2 months since that happened and president putin had claimed on that day that russia and ukraine are one people and the military attack is only with the ostensible goal to demilitarize and denazify ukraine uh since then of course it has significantly escalated and uh, it's been continuing now what we have is the battle of donbas at the time we are recording this episode where russia has launched a fresh offensive in the south of ukraine uh, the attack has had wide ranging geopolitical economic and human humanitarian implications and is europe's first major war since world war 2 it's also led to europe's largest refugee crisis since world war 2 with an estimated 4.3 million people leaving the country and 6.5 million internally displaced in this episode of justify we discuss some of the implications of this war together with what as lawyers we think is the elephant in the room international law international law is supposed to govern situations such as these when states attack each other and when there is conflict of this nature so is international law a mute spectator in the russia ukraine conflict and has india with its delicately balanced foreign policy stayed on the right side of the law i'm pleased to be joined today by leading international lawyer and my international law professor priya pillai priya welcome to justify Thank you so much for the introduction and thank you very much for having me today. I'm looking forward to discussing this. My pleasure entirely. So Priya going back to 2007 when you had taught us. You said that there were two primary ways of looking at the legality of war. Uh one the reasons for the war, the use ad bellum and how the war is fought and that it has to be fought fairly that is use in bellum. Let's discuss these in the context of the Ukraine Russia conflict. So let's take use ad bellum the legality of the war itself what in your view is uh, the legality or otherwise of the of the russian russia ukraine conflict absolutely i mean i think this is sort of the fundamental key question that we need to address uh, before we we go to you know the conduct of the war and and this really takes me back to my time at law school in 2007 and i feel like you know i'm i'm back in class in a way um but really i feel that this is an area that we need to discuss more because this is one of the key positions also linked to our discussion later on india so let's look really at um how we look at the legality of this war and i would actually change my terminology a little bit i would frankly call it the invasion of ukraine um if you look at the un charter we're really looking at you know the the core precepts of what the un was meant to do and the un charter was meant to do post second world war and that was really to ensure that there's stability there's a maintenance of peace and security and one of the key provisions in the un charter is article 24 which basically says no state shall use or threaten to use force um in any of its international relations and essentially that this is not a method of conduct of states and it is a prohibited conduct actually of states as well in that context 
in my view, you have a clear violation of Article 2.4. And yes, 2.4 has certain exceptions. So 2.4 has an exception of self-defense. It has an exception of UN Security Council action. In this case, none of those exceptions are met. Um, Russia has argued that Article 51 of the UN Charter, which is collective self-defense, is what it, it is invoking in its action, and, and to use uh, Putin's words, the special military action in Ukraine is in conformity with Article 51 of the UN Charter. So I think we've also got to look at it in context as well, um, and why Russia is making this argument. Essentially, it's saying, look, we are protecting the people within the Donbass region, with, within uh, this area, which is, you know, a, a particular to us, it has Russian speaking population, and therefore we are, well, therefore we are taking this action. I think important to realize that that is, that doesn't meet the criteria for self-defense, and it is not a sufficient basis for this. And, and I think it's good to also talk about the reaction of the General Assembly and the Security Council to this legality or illegality of, of the war or the invasion in itself. Yeah, I think that's that's very succinctly put. And there's a reason I was avoiding the word invasion because I was hoping that we would come to it as 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 an inference rather than a presumption, uh, which is why you saw that I was skirting around and using words like war and attack and so on. And that was that was deliberate. Uh, but if we look at the question of legality, as you said very clearly, uh, this is not in self-defense, doesn't meet the criteria required for self-defense, and it is, of course, not action that is authorized by the United Nations itself. The use of force is not authorized by the United Nations. Now, the question that tends to get asked, and there are many, but one is that if this is the standard that is used to judge legality or otherwise, then there are similar examples of the US invading Iraq, uh, invading Afghanistan, where again, questions of what is self-defense come up. So I think what that question distills down to is that what is that threshold of self-defense that we need for that exception to 2-4 being triggered? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's, and, and of course, when you're talking about, you know, questions of, of invasion or occupation, yes, Iraq 2003 immediately comes up. We've got you know other examples of it. I think in the in the time that you know we're we're looking at the situation unfold right now. Keep in mind the and, and I will call it the Iraq invasion as well. Um, that in my view again was clearly illegal. There were very few sort of requirements of self-defense. I mean, I I think to the extent that the U.S. tried to make the case in a much sort of uh, much more measured way and, you know, did the multilateral sort of discussions, you know, you had Colin Powell presenting evidence about WMD, which of course later was, was found to be not, not correct, right? So I think we've got, in a way, it's become also a bit of a discussion of the process that has been used, but in either case, the requirements for self-defense have not been met. Um, I think the U.S. tried to sort of present an argument of anticipatory self-defense to say that, you know, there is an attack imminent and that is sort of the cause for, for the, the, the invasion or are sending our troops in. Perhaps that has a little more credence than the case of Ukraine and Russia. But honestly, I think in both these situations, it really is a case of an illegal um, 
illegal um, invasion and it's a misuse of, um, you know, it's, it's really an abuse of the UN Charter as well. And it falls foul of any requirements of self-defense as well as the use of force. So, so I think I think I understand the um, the need to pivot also to the U.S. and also to look at that as an instance. But two wrongs don't make a right. So I That's think, right. you know, and I think we shouldn't we shouldn't indulge in this as a matter of what about and yes. as you said, as in that was wrong and this is wrong too. Uh, but and I think the big question that arises as a consequence is. So what happens, right? And this is the big question for the legitimacy of international law itself and of international lawyers. The International Court of Justice, of course, ordered Russia to suspend all military operations in Ukraine in March. Russia, of course, refused to do so uh, and is clearly also in non-compliance with that order. Uh, and, and this actually raises the question that you said rightly that this is, this is a violation of the UN Charter. Uh, and, and it's now a violation of the ICJ's order as well, uh, but Russia doesn't seem to care, right? And so what is the remedy for a situation like this? Uh, or is international law, as Bentham had famously and uh, pejoratively said, nonsense on stilts because it doesn't have uh, an enforcing mechanism? Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think that there are a lot of things to unpack actually in this. Um, let me look sort of quickly first at remedial action and what needs to happen, what has happened perhaps. So when we look at the UN architecture, the architecture of the UN Security Council, the General Assembly has been constituted in a particular way. You have permanent members that have a veto, that have the power to exercise a veto or, you know, on, on particular issues. And that of course has become the biggest issue in this context where you have Russia that is sitting on the UN Security Council, um, you know, talk about a clear conflict of interest and exercising its veto. To the extent, unfortunately, that is the structure that has been set up. So, you know, I do think this is also a moment to say there are deeper structural issues around the way global governance has been articulated and this architecture and that this needs to change. And of course, this is something that States have been saying for many, many years, including India, including Brazil, you know, a group of states that have been talking about revamp and, and sort of a revision of this UN charter system. Now, leaving that aside to, you know, to for one second, um, I think what's also happened in this context is you've got a lot of states that have turned around and said, look, we realize Russia sitting on the Security Council. We realize that we are going to now get stuck in terms of you know, the, the first draft resolution that was put together uh, by Albania and the US 25th of February talked specifically about aggression and it talked about a violation of 2-4. And of course, it was blocked and it was, you know, uh, vetoed. And then there was a pivot to the General Assembly, where you actually have a Uniting for Peace resolution, which is, you know, uh, resolution 377-5 of 1950 or 51, which actually says, well, when the Security Council is not doing its job, when it is effectively blocked by a veto, and it's looking at the maintenance of international peace and security, then the UN General Assembly, by an emergency session, needs to, in a way, take on some of the role of the Security Council. Of course, there's still um, the lack of the ability for the GA to enforce anything. Enforcement powers are still with the Security Council. But I don't think this is a small thing. You know, this is the first time in, I think, probably four decades that the General Assembly passed a Uniting for Peace resolution. And I think just in terms of the number of states that 
that actually uh, proposed the resolution, it was 90. The number of states that voted for it was 141. There were 35 abstentions and five states that said, no, we don't agree. And honestly, the five states are Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, uh, Russia, and Syria. So no, you know, no surprise there. But I think in terms of changing some of the dynamics, I think that was a very important moment as well in looking at, okay, what are the options? What can be done? Yes, the General Assembly still has, uh, uh, you know, there still are, there's a lack of power for the General Assembly, again, by design, by structure of the UN Charter, but that's not to say it's helpless and that's not to say it cannot do something. Now, in terms of enforcement, yes, that has been the standard bugbear of international law, you know, there is no international police force, there is no sort of compliance mechanism that a domestic jurisdiction will have. Yes, you do have international courts. But what I will say is, if you're looking at international accountability, since the 90s, and I'll point to the Balkans as well, you've had the Security Council pass resolution setting up to ad hoc tribunals, so the ICTR and the ICTY, which have prosecuted people for war crimes, crimes against humanity, for genocide in Srebrenica as well. So you have an enforcement. There are means and methods of enforcement as well. So it's not a... a, a complete sort of, uh, you know, blank slate to that extent. And this is where there are a lot of discussions now also on the role of some of these courts and what role they might play, um, you know, in looking at accountability in looking at aggression specifically as well. And we can get into that in a little more detail, but I, I think that might answer some of those questions. Yeah, and I think that's actually a, a good segue because yeah. you, you talked about uh, aggression and I was reading this uh, article that Philippe Sands uh, wrote yes. in the Financial Times and then an interview right. in The Guardian, uh, because of course his book East West Street was about yeah. uh, Lviv uh, and, uh, and uh, as to how in some sense uh, international humanitarian law uh, and international criminal law emerged out of the work of Lemkin and Lauterpacht, who were both from uh, that part of the world, that it seems kind of uh, not just a coincidence, but almost a surreal uh, coincidence that, uh, that, that Ukraine is where we are discussing this issue. And, and he points to the, the real possibility of, uh, of a specialized tribunal uh, being set up. Uh, to, to prosecute some of these actions. Uh, and in some of these actions, one of the things that he talks about is aggression. Uh, and now let's, so let's get into the use in bellow question and what has happened uh, in the war itself. And there are several claims, of course, ranging from President Zelensky saying that uh, this is a genocide against the Ukrainian population. Putin has been regularly, perhaps loosely, uh, being called a war criminal, uh, including, I believe, by President Biden in, in, in one statement. Uh, and of course, uh, the crime of aggression is something that a lot of international lawyers have said uh, is, and in Philippe Sands' words, a slam dunk case. So in your view, in light of the facts of what has happened in Ukraine, uh, which of these do you think are possible cases against Russia? given the fact that Russia is also not a signatory to the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and there's a lot to unpack. So I think probably what I'll do is just give you a little bit of the lay of the land. of. Sure, I think that would be great for our listeners. Because I think we've got multiple legal proceedings going on and some have been actually going on from 2014. So, okay, let's look at the International Criminal Court. So the ICC, Ukraine is not a signatory, Russia is not a signatory. However, 
there is a method by which non-state parties can um, basically permit the court jurisdiction. And Ukraine has done that. It has made two declarations under what is called an Article 12.3 declaration, basically saying we, uh, we agree that the ICC can look at crimes in the territory of Ukraine uh, from a certain time period, basically 2014. Now, what's happened at this point, and, and you know, <laughs> things are evolving and developing quite fast, but the latest is that using another route in the Rome Statute, uh, 41 states have basically referred the case of Ukraine as well to the prosecutor. And so the ICC prosecutor who's, you know, who's taken over, I think last June, relatively new, has basically decided to proceed with this next stage, which is called an investigation. And this investigation encompasses what is happening right now as well on the territory of Ukraine. So that's where we are on the ICC. Now, keep in mind, ICC, we're talking about war crimes. We're talking about genocide. We're talking about crimes against humanity. But we are not talking about the crime of aggression. So Article 8 bis of the ICC statute, the Rome statute, defines aggression. This was the subject of a lot of negotiation. It actually got activated only 2017, 2018. Not essentially, the state said, okay, we'll have an opt-in clause. We'll have this article. If you feel that aggression should apply as a state party, you, can, you, can, you need to opt in. It doesn't automatically apply. In this case, Ukraine and Russia have not opted for it. So it's sort of off the table, which is why now there's this discussion saying, well, textbook and and you know honestly if you look at it this and and i and i have a, a little clip of it with me planning preparation initiation or execution by a person in a position effectively to exercise control over or direct the political or military action of a state of an act of aggression by its character gravity and scale constitutes a manifest violation of the charter of the un so that's a gap, right? If you are going down the path of saying this is a war of aggression, what, is, what are the options now? Now, I've read uh, Philippe Sands' declaration and statement. He's got a bunch of other lawyers who have signed on to the statement as well. It's a four-page statement that's available on the net. And it lays out a very clear case to say, look, we do need a special tribunal for aggression. Now, there is pushback also. There are criticisms of this um, suggestion for a few reasons, some of which I think are really valid. Um, one is essentially saying, look, it smacks of Victor's justice in a way. We're not saying the war is over. We're not saying this conflict is over. But if and when it does uh, resolve, perhaps in favor of Ukraine or with Ukraine being split, does it smack of Nuremberg and Victor's justice in a way? And maybe that's given, as we've talked about the invasion of Iraq, where we've had the US and the UK sort of, you know, at the helm of that conflict, it might seem hypocritical to have these states involved in a special tribunal for aggression, which I think is a really valid criticism as well. The other is to say, look, the ICC already is trapped of funds, of resources. Maybe we shouldn't be diverting so much energy and attention away from the ICC. There's an alternative uh, option which has been suggested actually by one of my uh, contributing editors on, on the international law blog, Opinio Juris, which I'm an, I'm, I'm an editor on as well, Kevin Heller. And he says, look, with all these problems, perhaps we should have what is called a, a specialized tribunal within Ukraine, so within the courts of Ukraine. And we've had this example in the case of uh, 
essentially um, extraordinary African chambers. The African Union had an agreement with Senegal to have a chamber within the Senegalese court system, which had elements of domestic as well as international judges, as well as international law. And that perhaps this is something we should consider. So at this point, I think there are a lot of options on the table. And the suggestion is, you know, this should this is a regional issue as well. There should be a regional solution. And perhaps this is a Council of Europe supported uh, initiative, which Russia is still a part of. I think it's been suspended or there are discussions of it being suspended as well. So that's something else that's on the table that people are sort of debating. Just just if I can interrupt you there and we can get to the other parts of uh, the war crimes and genocide in a bit. Uh, As a a lawyer, domestic lawyer, not doing work on international law, it always strikes me, and perhaps this is a slightly contrary note, that a lot of international law is kind of innovation that's learning by doing. You know, like it's kind of, you're making things up as you're going along. Uh, And that somewhere strikes me instinctively as a lawyer, as contrary to what the law should be. Uh, So a lot of the sentiment about, you know, Victor's justice and so on stems from the fact that you are now applying something new or a procedure at least that is new retrospectively to a situation that has already happened. How would you respond to this kind of charge? I would say that's not entirely correct, right? So, I mean, and I think especially if you're in the field, you realize that there have been actually a lot of developments in the last 35 years. So, yes, you had Nuremberg in the 40s, but since then you've had the ICTY, the ICTR, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Extraordinary Chambers for Cambodia, you've got special chambers in the Central African Republic, you've got the ICC. So you actually have a massive corpus of law that 25, 30 years ago, you know, at Nuremberg was new, but has actually crystallized and consolidated and they're fairly sort of discrete and fairly sound principles when you're looking at uh, use in bello, when you're actually looking at, you know, conduct of war, hostilities, definitions of crimes against humanity. So yes, I mean, look, I think law everywhere is an iterative process. It is a process of social change. It is a process of reacting to, you know, the world, whether it's a domestic jurisdiction where you're talking about corporate or tax law or e-commerce or bitcoins, or you're talking about, you know, a a different way of waging war, perhaps even, you know, so right now in IHL, you've got a lot of people looking very, very focused at cyber crimes and cyber warfare, you know, how that might or might not uh, relate to some of the norms that, that, you know, have evolved from since the 1800s in terms of, of actual war and conduct of hostilities. So to that, I would say there's a strong corpus of law that is, yes, developing. Right now, though, I think we're talking about the mechanism. We're talking about the how. We're not talking about the what. I think some of the substance of the what is there, but it's really what is a better model in a way. And for that, again, there are many, many options now to choose from, you know, much more than say when I joined the ICTY in 2002, 2003, it was an ad hoc standalone sort of model. It spawned many models and many different ways of doing things. So, so I think- I'm Sorry, just to, yeah. just to continue to maybe be a little bit provocative. It strikes yeah. me uh, that the how is always contingent on the extent of political power that you wield. So if you're doing it against Sierra Leone, yeah, sure, you can set up a a special court for Sierra Leone. But if you're doing it against Putin and Russia, best of luck. You know, it seems a bit like that. Absolutely. No, no, no. I mean, look, all law is also linked to politics. 
domestically, internationally. And that is a fact, right? So that is something that is that is not really an elephant in the room. That is part and parcel of how you view what is a workable option. So in fact, you know, this, this uh, suggestion of a Ukraine tri- a hybrid sort of model has come from some of the debates saying, well, look, honestly, the special tribunal, which is more the Nuremberg model, with the geopolitics may not work. So let's look at something else. That is, And I think there's also a move to, and I think correctly, to look at international law in a domestic context. How do you mm. domesticate international law as well? And international law emanates from national jurisdictions. It's not just you know, made up here in multilateral fora. Yes, yes, it is there, but it is also from court decisions. It is also from these extraordinary chambers for Sierra Leone, for you know, CAR, for Bosnia-Herzegovina. So it, you know, it, it is there are multiple sources that you can locate some of this law. And that feeds back into the method and and the procedure and and how to do it. So I think that's so let's important. turn let's let's turn to the what then uh, because now we know that the how is is evolving and and international law is an evolving field like any other uh, branch of law and this can will help it evolve uh, and move along further. But as far as the what is concerned, so what we've got on the table is genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and we've got a certain set of facts and actions of what Russia has has done or purportedly done. Uh, And in your view, as one, uh, are these met, number one? And number two is this question of command responsibility. If they are met, as in, is it some mid-level or lower-level officer as in who's going to be tried? Or or are we we really talking about the Putins and the Lavrovs here? Yeah. Complex question. Let me sort of get my thoughts together. I think, look, let's look at just factually what we are hearing and seeing on the ground right now. So, you know, the first two weeks, there were not so many reports coming out. I think now territories that were occupied where the Russians have pulled back from, Bucha, some of the other parts of of, uh, Ukraine where, you know, they've left, we're now seeing horrific reports. We're seeing reports of, you know, mass graves of of 700 men executed, hands tied behind their backs. We're seeing, you know, illegal detentions, torture, rape as well, sexual violence. So these are all reports that are coming out, which are also being documented, which are being sort of, uh, again, by the Ukrainian government being consolidated, including digital evidence, including all these evidentiary issues. Now, I think in terms of um, how we look at some of this, you've got very clear requirements under, for example, the Rome Statute. If you're saying crimes against humanity, you have to prove it's a widespread or a systematic attack. You have to prove, you know, civilian casualties, depending on which crimes you're looking at. So that's really going to be quite a lot of detailed work, which I think is already beginning to happen. There is a joint investigative team that has been set up by Lithuania, Poland, a few other countries that are actually now on the ground in Ukraine and that are collecting evidence, forensic, digital, you know, eyewitnesses. So that is all happening. The Ultimate analysis, depending on which court, which tribunal, is really going to depend on, you know, the evidence that's collected, how it's presented, what the prosecutor feels are the crimes that he or she, you know, wants to put forward and and against whom. Now, and I think I'll just pivot away very quickly because the question of genocide comes up a lot. And, And I think let's just pivot to the International Court of Justice case, which is a case between states. So Ukraine has taken Russia to the ICJ. Basically, and, and this is really counterintuitive, right? So, and this was early days, this was 24th, 25th of February. 
where Ukraine made the argument that we are taking Russia to court under the Genocide Convention. The legal hook is uh, a dispute linked to the interpretation of the application of the convention. You, you need that to be able to go to, to the ICJ. And basically saying Putin and Russia have invoked genocide incorrectly. That is not happening in Donbass. And therefore, we are coming to the ICJ. Now, the Ukraine application, when you look at the application, they did leave the door open. They've said this is, and I, and I, and I quote, they've said this is turning the genocide convention on its head, what Russia is doing. But there's one paragraph, in fact, paragraph 24 of Ukraine's application, which actually says, and Russia is planning acts of genocide. So they've kept that door open to say, if it becomes a substantive question of genocide in Ukraine, that that is something we can look at the ICJ for a determination. Keep in mind, the only other case right now before the ICJ on the genocide convention is uh, Myanmar, uh, uh, Gambia versus Myanmar, exactly. Where that's a positive over. You're talking about the occurrence of genocide. Here you have Ukraine refuting genocide, but also leaving the door open, right? To for say, an anticipatory genocide yes, to happen. Yeah. yeah. But keep in mind that's state response. You're talking about the state. ICC, you're talking about individuals. And to your point, it's not just about, you know, command responsibility very clearly is part and parcel of the ICC, it's very clearly part of, of um, you know, all the cases that are, are before it. It becomes also a matter of prosecutorial discretion. It becomes a matter of, do you have enough evidence for certain acts? Who's, you know, who do you attribute it to? But also the other issue that has come up is, you know, head of state immunity. So how do you deal with that? The International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant case said it's not, um, it is not sort of something that can't be pierced if you have a tribunal which has jurisdiction, essentially something like the ICTY, something that has Security Council sanction or has been set up by a but express jurisdiction to uh, no, it can be implied. If the Security Council, implied. you know, Security Council has authorized setting up a tribunal, then you would say it's implied that therefore. Um, head of state immunity doesn't exactly so in, in fact that's been a little bit of the pushback linked to the special tribunal for aggression and when we look at aggression specifically it is a leadership crime it is something that you're looking at who planned who directed so you're not looking that much at the lower levels you're looking honestly at at the higher levels. so the foreign minister the prime minister you know who could have planned or authorized this act of aggression i think from that, I think it's also important to look at the very real uh, assessments that are going on now of IHL violations of humanitarian law in the conflict and what's going on right now, right? So you've got multiple instances of, and I think this was from maybe a few weeks ago, I was looking at Mariupol, which is right now besieged and, and you know, we don't know what the situation is there. This was, I think, on the 1st of April, more than 90% of all hospitals and schools had been destroyed. So in terms of civil, the focus on civilians who are specifically protected under the Geneva Conventions, who are not meant to be targeted, that really seems to be a hallmark of this, of this conflict, of really targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure, not, you know, as, as IHL clearly says, Military infrastructure, yes, that is possible. As long as, again, you're looking at proportionality, you're looking at you know, a, a certain sort of uh, facets or tenets within the law. So 
yeah, I mean, at this point, you really have a lot of potential war crimes um, that are being committed. You've got, you know, increasing amounts of documentation of these. So I think there is pace is gathering in terms of, okay, accountability where. And the Human Rights Council Resolution 49.1 actually has also authorized an independent commission of inquiry, which will also be collecting. So you've got all these, you know, different uh, bodies and institutions all looking at different facets in a way, which at some point could, you would say, contribute to a more focused sort of approach and, and how to, um, yeah, how to address some of these. I think this is, this has really taken me back to our classes. I think this was a slam dunk summary of the international law position uh, as far as the Ukraine-Russia conflict is concerned. And, and also something that, that, that sort of is coming up very clearly is that there is a lot of play between the joints. And that is always determined by political equations between states and the balance of power. So let's, let's turn to India and what India has done in this period. Uh, and of course, as we all know broadly, the foreign minister has said on multiple times that India is acting according to its own interests and following its own principles and has outlined six principles, which can broadly be termed as some kind of conscientious self-interest. Uh, uh, in which, uh, following which India has kept its communication lines open with both Ukraine and Russia, refused to be drawn in on any side, particularly back uh, the United States, uh, and, 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 and of course run the risk of uh, falling foul of what the United States has called an inflection point for autocratic versus democratic regimes. Uh, given this, given the, as an international lawyer, and given the fact that you have clearly made out a case for the uh, invalidity and the illegality of the Russian actions in Ukraine and possibly uh, commissions of several war crimes, crimes of aggression in Ukraine, how do you see India's position or reconcile India's kind of a careful balancing act in the context of what seems to be a clearly illegal war. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I've been following India's position, of course, since, since day one to try to sort of assess what is, is um, you know, what, what, what really is um, informing its position, of course. And look, and I will say this very clearly, I am not a geopolitical expert. I'm not an IR expert. You know, I, I have some sense of, of obviously the geopolitics, but that is not my realm of expertise. With that, of course, I realize the geopolitics, right? We have a reliance on, on arms with Russia. We have a reliance on oil, um, you know, oil and coal. Um, we've got, of course, the traditional old ties, you know, non-alignment, all that sort of in, in play as well. Um, but honestly, I think, look, we also need to... Um, evolve, monitor the situation and evolve. So perhaps in the first week of this conflict, the assertions of Russia might have rung truer, saying, look, we are protecting civilians in Donbass. That is what we're intending to do. That is sort of, it's going to be, in Putin's words, a special military operation, which gives you the sense that it's targeted, it's limited in time, it's going to be very focused. You know, it's going to be over in a few days, leaving aside the legality or not of that. As time has gone by now, it's two months in, the fact is that we can see um, evidence of war crimes coming out. We can see 
the decimation and obliteration of cities, right? So I think with that, I think India's position also needs to evolve because I do feel that, and, and I, I, you know, I read this very good uh, op-ed piece by Suhasin Haider yesterday in The Hindu, where she talks about, you know, is this a matter of strategic autonomy, but we can actually still call Russia out. And she actually talks about 2003, the invasion where a resolution was tabled in parliament, despite nascent sort of ties developing with the US where they were still called out for the invasion. And I think to be honest right now, um, we're a little bit on the wrong side of history. If you look at the General Assembly resolution, 141 states have called it a violation of 2-4. So have said it's aggression. Now. Let's keep that aside. Let's look at the six points, uh, the six principles for India's position. And, and you know, I followed the ambassador's uh, statements each time a uh, resolution has been passed, especially the abstentions and, you know, especially the Security Council, there have been statements made by India. And in fact, I would say, yes, there's nuance. And the statements, in fact, talk about the importance of the UN Charter, international law, respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity of states. And there was an addition saying all member states need to honor these principles in finding a constructive way forward. In terms of the six principles, you know, everything there is absolutely valid, absolutely correct. When you're talking about humanitarian access, you're talking about respect for territorial integrity, you're talking about dialogue and diplomacy, cessation of hostilities. But I don't think that any of that is antithetical to calling it what it is. To say, and this is aggression, and I think, look, the other point that does worry me is if from a policy perspective, you're saying you're keeping mute or you're just saying, okay, we'll abstain. However, that abstention is construed. You know, people are also putting a spin on it, saying an abstention is actually support. It's not saying no. In the end, it's also the optics of it. But I do feel from an international legal perspective, you cannot abstain and then later, if you have aggression on your line of actual control, it's going to be a really uh, difficult position to then justify to say, yes, we didn't call this aggression, but an incursion on our line of actual control or LOC is aggression. You know, so there's, it's going to come unless, back. To unless you want to be the aggressor yourself. That too, mm. right? But I do think this is, if you are presenting yourself as a geopolitical power, you're presenting yourself as a power that, takes responsibility, which I think, which I hope is, is the approach always, then it's going to be very hard to later justify how you have approached Ukraine. And, and just, just purely on this question of sovereignty and territorial integrity, if you want to you know, narrow it down just to that. So it becomes a bit of a contradiction in terms and you're laying the groundwork to weaken your position as well. So and I think that's 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 really well put, especially because of the fact that uh, we are not geopolitical experts, and obviously there are multiple factors that we are not considering here, uh, which are obviously in play when determining what uh, India stand on an old ally and trading partner Russia will be. Uh, but I'm going to ask you one final question on this, uh, which is just taking forward. Uh, what you said that, you know, India also needs to revise its position, even if it's in a calibrated manner, given how the situation is unfolding. Uh, given that, as in, do you realistically sense that apart from any kind of bellwether incidents where, you know, someone's caught red-handed, uh, you know, 
or authorizing a genocide or something like that, which can really turn the tide against Russia in some way or the other. But short of that, as a, do you sense that in the coming weeks, months, uh, we will see some kind of universal consensus emerging? I mean, a, a general consensus, it won't be everybody, uh, but a general consensus emerging one way or the other in this, in this dispute. So I think the short question would be, how do you see it panning out from now? Yeah, well, one, I would say that universal consensus has already emerged. UN General Assembly Resolution Uniting for Peace is 141 states condemning Russia for aggression. So I think that that ship has sailed. Um, I think in terms of India's calibration, look, I think there's, there's a ratcheting of the rhetoric linked to NATO expansion and Finland right now. So, you know, looks imminent that that is going to happen, that Finland is pretty much by the summer going to join NATO. And if that, I mean, already you're seeing the rhetoric from Russia. I mean, they're even talking about nuclear strikes. I mean, I don't know within the Indian government what the red line is, but there needs to be some, because clearly I don't see this um, subsiding anytime soon, unfortunately, unless, you know, unless all this, is to a view of India being able to negotiate or mediate, but I don't see that happening either. It's sort of neither here nor there. Um, so honestly, I mean, it looks like this will drag on either with a part of Ukraine being sort of separated uh, by force. And there needs to be some point at which the Indian government also recalibrates and, and says, look, there is already consensus about what's happening here. And maybe we need to we need to adjust our position as well. But, but I really wouldn't be able to say internally what the government is thinking, but hopefully they will ask policy experts and you know, they will evolve as the situation uh, evolves as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good place to leave it because I think we can uh, have a continuing conversation on this, uh, given that this is such a key moment for international lawyers, international relations experts, as well as for geopolitical experts. We've never seen a war like this since the Second World War, which is at such a scale, which can potentially be global. Uh, and I think while there is uh, time for a great deal of reflection on, on particularly on what international law has and has not achieved, it's also a moment of a great tragedy where, where, where lives are being lost on an everyday basis. And, and as citizens, not just of our countries, but of, of humanity, I think we all hope that at some point of time, sooner rather than later, uh, this violence can stop. And, and, and the law uh, can take its course in a fair, just and equitable manner. And I think uh, we can leave it there. Thank you very much, Priya, for, for this really engaging conversation. I've learned a lot today, and I hope our listeners have too. So thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Time for Clatter, our legal quiz that's a bit harder than clat. Last week, I'd asked you a question on the parliamentary procedure that the opposition in India had complained of not being followed during the passage of the farm laws. The answer is division of votes. A division is a procedure by which votes of members of parliament are actually counted as opposed to taking a voice vote, which gives a sense of the house. I'm delighted that our winner is an old friend, Mohan Gowda, Welcome back, Mohan, to Justify, and congratulations. A free subscription of Disney Hotstar is on its way to you. This week, the question is on Ukraine. The Verkhovna Rada 
is the parliament of Ukraine. And on a particular index, which scores multi-member bodies from zero to one, the Verkhovna Rada scored only 0.11 in the period around 2013-14, but around 2010, the index was as high as 0.75. Think what went on in Ukraine during this period and tell me, what is the name of this index? And more importantly, what does it measure? Please write in with your answers to justify at vithilegalpolicy.in. All right answers stand a chance to win an exciting gift. For the song today, since the war is still on in Ukraine, this is a song for peace, composed by the extraordinary musician Salil Chaudhary and sung in Bengali by a choir. Enjoy the song, let's hope for peace, and tune in next week. Adjourned. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vithilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.